Welcome to Bootstrappers, a program designed to bring you up-to-the-minute ideas and concepts to understand what it takes to succeed in business and life. Each week, we'll bring you guests and ideas you can't find anywhere else. Bootstrappers is a production of Anaquim LLC. Now strap on those business boots and join Bootstrappers with Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. Welcome to this episode of Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Gwen Aspen, president of Anaquim. I'm here with my spouse, Jeremy Aspen, who's president of Wistar Group. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. And here at Bootstrappers, we talk to bright minds, interesting thought leaders, uh, people in the community um, about things that impact our industry, which is investment property management. And we just talk about business in general. So even if you're not a property manager or an entrepreneur, or you just want to know more about business, this is the show for you. I'd so. even say that we go so far as to touch on things that you can apply to your life. So if you're driving around your car on 1290 coil <laughs> and you, you're wondering what you're listening to, it's that. All of these uh, concepts and stuff that we talk about, they do ultimately run into your life. So at, at Bootstrappers, we stay hungry break things and strap on those business boots. So with that, today we are so lucky to have Claire Gibson of Gibson Law. Um, she, she's here with us today and she specializes in intellectual property law. Uh, Claire has worked on intellectual property issues with top brands like JP Morgan Chainworks uh, and NBC Universal. And she's a graduate of Columbia University and Brooklyn Law School, both in New York. Welcome, Claire. We're so happy Hi. to have you. I'm excited Claire, to be here. I, I think this might put you as uh, one of the smartest guests we've ever had, Columbia <laughs> and Brooklyn Law School. I know, right? Almost I'm like, oh my gosh, we're all intimidated over here. <laughs> Don't be. Uh, <laughs> but um, we're so happy to have you here because I have to tell you, as an entrepreneur, uh, we've uh, run a few companies and started things from scratch. And the last thing that we and most of our entrepreneurial friends are thinking about is legal issues because we're yeah. big visionaries and we want to see our services and our products um, out there. And then we're thinking about how to invoice and bring the money in and the legal stuff. We're like, oh, it will work itself out. Yeah. It will just work but, itself out. And I would imagine that's true. It does work itself out, but I would bet it's not always in the business owner's favor. Yeah. No. And, <laughs> and so, Claire, um, because a lot of the people that we work with, uh, you know, we just haven't been involved in your realm at all. We were wondering if, if you were starting a company or you were consulting with someone starting a company from scratch. What kind of legal things do they need to think about before they even get started? So first things first, anytime you are starting a business, you are going to incur expenses. For, so just from a tax side of things, you want to get your business registration sorted out first. And people think of their business registration as ownership of the business name mm -hmm. or something along those lines. It's not. Your business name registration is essentially for tax purposes and for liability purposes. So anything you're doing, branding, marketing, you're buying products, you're marketing services, all of those things incur expenses. You want to be able to get those as deductions at the end of the day. So before you do anything else, you want to get the business registered. 
So can I drill down a little bit on that? Because I mean, okay, so we're already starting off. I've got questions. So business registration, you have to do it at the state level. And then after you get that, and correct me if I'm wrong, then you would get the IRS, uh, the the EIN number. And so when you say registration, are you saying that uh, package together? So we as attorneys, we generally package it together, but that's a good question because I'm realizing most entrepreneurs probably don't think about it that way. Right. So to break that down into three additional steps, arguably Mm. four, uh, you go get registered at your state's division of commerce or whatever the state equivalent is. Some states have different names for that. You then sometimes have to file separately for your state tax ID, and then you have to go get your federal tax ID. From there, depending on the nature of the business, you also want to consider getting insurance. And when it comes to doing your business registration, you also want to think about liability issues. Lawyers love thinking about liability. Nobody else likes thinking about liability. No. Uh, (laughs) The purpose of having your business is to help protect your individual assets as much as possible from liability issues. Pretty much most businesses have some degree of liability exposure. So you want to talk to an attorney and a CPA as well to make sure that you are in the correct type of business formation, whether that's an LLC, multi-member LLC, um, S-Corp, C-Corp, what have you. Okay, Claire, I want to just even go back a little bit farther. People are thinking about starting a business. They have to have a name. And the name is so freaking hard because uh, you have to have something not taken in your state. And a lot of people get that far, but they don't think about the fact that if you're online, your name can be commingled with like another company that has the same name, but in a different state. And then when the online reviews happen, you're getting their online reviews, they're getting your yours. And it's, it's a big mess because all businesses, especially in our industry are made, made or broken by those online reviews. So do you have any advice for people when they're picking a name on either the steps they should take or what hasn't been taken? It's just so hard to even find a business that hasn't been taken. So before you even get to that part of it, let's separate your business name from your brand. Those are two different things. Okay, you gotta you gotta <laughs> tell us more about that. Yeah, so think about some of the big guys. Think about Unilever. If you even know what Unilever is, Unilever yeah. owns Dove. They own Hellman's mayonnaise. They own Ben and Jerry Vaseline. All all of these brands. These brands are what you look for when you're shopping for the various things. The brands are the identification of the product. Nobody's shopping for Unilever. <laughs> Right. Okay. So okay. When you're doing your business registration. What you're registering is the name of your business. The name of the business doesn't have to be the brand that you're marketing as the face of your business. It doesn't have to be the source identifier for whatever your products and services are. So when it comes to picking your business registration for your business name, you can be as creative, not creative, some, as generic, as boring, whatever. Whatever works for you, Go. you can name it after family. You can name it after, I don't know, a color, call it purple LLC. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter as much. So that's not the difficult part. What becomes difficult is then picking a brand and what's going to be what clients identify and customers identify your services or your products by. And that's where IP attorneys like me come in. And (laughs) 
Yeah. And I do. Or oftentimes not. We end up coming in later when everything is imploded. Um, Ideally, (laughs) if you're doing it right, we come in in the beginning before you've started marketing anything, before you started selling anything. My advice to clients is generally this. If you are cost strapped, get a little brainstorming family session, friend session together let people come up with creative names and ideas. It needs to be distinct. It needs to be unique. Come up with three or four of those, then go get a consultation with a brand attorney and let them do a search for you to see if that mark is even available for registration. And this is for USPTO trademark registration. Now, if you aren't as cash strapped or you can find one that's an affordable level, you can also hire a naming company. Naming companies, naming agencies, they do all of that brainstorming creativity for you. You come to them with some ideas and themes of of what you want to evoke with your customers, Mm. your clients, and they give you a list of suggested names, variations, and things that should work for you. Um, There's different levels, obviously, different costs associated, um, but you can probably get like a smaller agency for not too expensive a cost. And there as well, because they're going to go for the most distinctive and you're paying them to do so. They're going to go for the most distinctive brand possible. You're more likely to come up with something there that will be clear for use for you. Wow. Okay. So, so I have my name. I some figured out it wasn't taken. Now I have to come up with like a logo, right? So before you even get to the logo, I often, yeah, now I'm the saying take a couple of steps back. Um, Before you even get to your logo, I generally recommend coming up with one or more word marks and your slogans that you intend to use, get an attorney to do some preliminary and comprehensive clearance searches on those. If they come back clear, and I'll warn you, the USPTO, if I remember correctly, they are up to about 75% of the words in the English language are registered as a trademark in one or more classes of goods and services. Wow. Yes. So when you said it's so difficult coming up with something original, that's exactly right. Um, and the standard for confusing similarity in between brands is actually very stringent. So yes, it is difficult. Um, but if you get it cleared and, and it's good to go, Uh, The next stage that I would recommend is simultaneously filing your federal trademark registration while also acquiring your domains. Now, when it comes to acquiring the domains, you want not only the exact mark that you're going for, but things confusingly similar and related to it. So at the end of it, you might end up with five or six different uh, registrations for domains. And the ones that aren't exactly right, just get them forwarded to your domain. The reason for that is the minute you file an application for federal trademark registration, there are some very malicious people who literally monitor the registry and they know you're going to want your your .com or your .info or .org or what have you, and they go register it and then try to sell it to you for three, four, five, six times the price. So, oh my gosh. So yeah. see, entrepreneurs are not thinking about any of this. <laughs> I don't think they're, they're so busy with other things. And this does sound really expensive. I mean, when yeah. you start a business, there's so many startup costs, you know, you're not going to make money for at least 18 months, two years. And then you have to think about adding this to your budget as well. So yeah, uh, it's I want kind to of interrupt a- one second. I want to make sure everybody knows that we're speaking with Claire Gibson, and she's a principal at Gibson Law. She's, you said South Carolina, but originally you uh, you actually work in New York. 
We're talking yeah. about IP, uh, it's intellectual property and how it applies to your company. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate <laughs> it. Um, yeah, well, you were asking about when it comes to the cost. Um, it's expensive. It's not. <laughs> okay, so how how true how true is this statement though? When I was while we've been talking, I've I've been thinking about this. I don't think it's actually possible to avoid legal fees. All you're doing by jumping ahead is determining when you're going to incur those those legal fees and, and probably this and how much. Yeah, whereas it, you do it a little bit later in time and you're exposing yourself to it just happening unplanned and depending on the severity of the lawsuit or the tenacity of the claimant, you will could spend a whole heck of a lot more. Yes. Okay. Um it's definitely one of those situations where you're very likely to pay more the longer you wait. And I know that's very hard for small business owners and entrepreneurs starting up and the, the thoughts of all of these costs. My advice is this, if you are really strapped for, for costs in, in the beginning and you don't have a lot of capital, there are a lot of free resources. Law schools, for example, have a lot of small business clinics, IP clinics, where you get a lot of free labor from law school students who are supervised by an experienced attorney and professor, and they will help walk you through a lot of these issues. They will help with business formation. They will help with IP portfolio building, the clearance, all of these things. So I often tell people instead of going to the, the free or cheap low cost, you know, online marketing options that you everyone sees when you type in, how do I get a registration? Um, it's often better that you go look for a law school clinic or low bono services, pro bono services. A lot of firms also do volunteer work as, as much as people think lawyers are just out for the almighty dollar. Um, there are a lot of firms that do offer small business services at, at free or low cost rates. So what about if I did this wrong and I started my company uh, and I did none of these things, um, do you recommend people just totally rebrand at a certain point? Like they're small and they see how the business kind of evolved and then just realize that you're going to have to completely rebrand and do it the right way? hate to say this and give the standard lawyer answer, but it depends. Ah. <laughs> uh, it really, really depends. Um, Sometimes, and it depends on how much you want to spend as well. And so, for example, I don't know if everyone's been following the Lady A versus uh, Lady Antebellum situation with the individual musician versus the band. And that was a situation where a solo artist was using a stage name without having it registered as a trademark, was using it for almost 20 years. 10 years into her career, a band literally filed the same trademark registration and started using it. Yeah. Let's not talk about how they weren't aware of her and what kind of search may or may not have been done. I don't know. I wasn't on their legal team, but they were able to get a federal registration without any cease and desist or enforcement from her. They used it for pretty much 10 years. So now they are in the middle of a lawsuit um, where the band is now seeking the declaratory judgment with regard to who actually owns the trademark. Oh my that God. That is the situation that can happen if you don't get your brands and registration sorted out in the beginning. So Jeremy, I know you wanted to kind of put some clarity with what we went through. Okay. So 
you know, you're driving around the, you're, you're listening to 1290 Coil, you're driving down Dodge Street, you're looking at that horrible big sign on Methodist Hospital, and you're wondering, what did they just go over in the right order? So what I wanted to ask you, to do, ask you um, Claire, is if I got these written down correctly, in terms of the order, when you're starting a company, is this the order that you should um, do these different things? So one, come up with a name. Right. Come up with the name. That's an easy one. It can be ABC. As long as it's available in your state, you can have that. There's no infringement issues. There's no legal issues. Probably um, you just kind of have that as a placeholder to pay your taxes. Yes. Right. Um, brand is, is step two. So then you've got to determine what name you're going to brand, what name you're going to put out there, because at that moment, it starts to become a little bit of a liability. If you, and it can be you could, different. It can be different than your company name. Like the brand. Yeah, you could, it, it's a, ideally, it should be. Well, and okay. I think, okay, ideally it should be. I want to get to that in a little bit, maybe. Um, but because you could theoretically open up a company in your state, right? Register it as Pepsi Property Management Company. No, okay, because, <laughs> because of the Pepsi. Let's not do that ever. Don't ever do that. But no, but the, I think the state would let you do it possibly because they're not necessarily they're looking not for any, checking. Pepsi right. is so. And that's what, uh, so, so in determining the brand, there's some steps and processes you have to go to, but this is, that's a, the step number two, first name, and then the brand, that's a, that there's a lot more tied to that. You're a lot yeah. more exposed when you determine what the brand is and the decisions you make at the front end will have long-term repercussions. Um, next, I think we grouped the slogan and the logo together. So figure out what the slogan is, kind of how you're going to get yourself out there marketing wise, make sure it passes a couple of tests. Um, and bring in a logo, probably a logo company, so they can do a little bit of that uh, research to make sure you're not infringing on anything. And then uh, when you're when you're about ready to do your domain uh, or do your federal EIN number for tax purposes, that's the time to uh, also do your domain search, right? Did I put that in the right order? Is, are you comfortable with me saying that? So the EIN happens when you do the business registration. So when you do your business registration, you want to get your state tax ID and your federal tax ID, which is your EIN. Okay, so, those so the three go together. Yeah. So the federal and domain, are you the federal marks and domain? Is that what you meant? So federal trademark registration and domain. Got it. Those okay. two go together. Those two go together. Okay. And All right, so, so that's your federal one trademark registrations will be the brand name that you're putting forward, the slogan, and your logo. Okay. So then we've got all this done. We've done this in our company, but what if we waited to register? So ideally you, you, you're filing these in advance. The USPTO, which is the United States Patent and Trademark Office, that is the government entity that oversees federal trademark registrations. They allow you up to 36 months after you file a registration for a mark to put that mark in use in commerce. So what you want to be doing is while you're brainstorming for that brand, you want to, to get that registered or not even registered, get an application with the USPTO before you're actually launching your products and services. And this is what saves you money in the long run. We were speaking earlier about how waiting can incur more costs. If you file that in advance, you're going to know whether it's available for use. You're going to know whether there are any issues with third parties because the examination process is already underway by the time you get issued what's called a notice of allowance for use. 
And by that time, you're putting together your marketing and you're building your, your customer uh, expectations and all of these other things. You know that you have a, a brand that's clear and available for use. You know that your logo is good to go. You know that your slogan is good to go. That said, if you don't do it in advance, what can end up happening is that you spend money on domains, you spend money on marketing materials, you've spent money on a graphic designer, mm -hmm. you have done you know lots of building and anticipation with your customer base and then you go try to file a trademark registration and find out that the brand is not available for use oh did you, did you research me did you research me before you got on this show <laughs> we actually went through some of those headaches oh. <sighs> Honestly, I could tell it you happens with a lot of people. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't go in order one through five. <laughs> <laughs> we it. did not I, do that. No. I hate when <laughs> clients come to me and it's like, oh, I've been using this for four years and I love it. And isn't it great? And in the in the initial process, what I do with clients is the first thing I do is what's called a preliminary trademark search. And that is just a manual search of the USPTO's T's, which is the system that has all of the registrations, pending registrations listed. And it is the worst feeling in the world as an attorney, when you have to come back and let a client know that this brand that they've poured so much time, money, blood, sweat, and tears into is not available for federal registration. Mm. Mm. It is not fun. It's not fun for me. It's not fun for the client. Um, the options for moving forward really depend on the specifics of why the brand isn't available. And it also depends on the specifics of the business and where they're using it. So trademark rights occur in pretty much two stages. You have common law rights from the time you start using a brand and then federal rights happen after you do the registration. Ideally, you always want to have federal rights because it makes things just easier in the event of any kind of infringement, litigation, the owner is clearly established, things of that nature. It just it just makes more sense in the long run. It's the safest place to be in. And yeah. since everybody is working like online anyway and you want to have a website everything's kind of national yes, national anyway. anyway sometimes even international but we're not going to get into international trademark registrations that's a whole right. ballpark um so ideally you do want to have that federal coverage which gives you national exclusive rights and ownership over that brand so if you have waited and it's a situation where there's a mark that's identical, like identical to yours with regards to the, the words in the mark, maybe even the appearance. It, it's similar in terms of the goods and services, if not identical in the goods and services. That is a rare situation because more often than not, that business owner would have sent you a cease and desist letter. Okay. Um, they would have found you. We are here. This is Bootstrappers. That's my dog. <laughs> We're here with Claire Gibson, uh, who is the principal at Gibson Law, and uh, we are talking about intellectual property uh, as pertains to starting up a business. It's as complicated as it can be, or as it, we thought it might be. Um, I wonder, Claire, because I'm kind of sometimes I'm getting lost. What is a mark, and what is the difference between a trade a trade name and a trademark? Okay, so that's partly my fault because I'm using them all interchangeably. Okay, so brands and trademarks are pretty much the same thing. Okay, uh, We call ourselves trademark attorneys, brand attorneys. The brand, the term brand is more used by the marketing side of things. 
with regards to, you know, they're doing the creative aspects. They are doing the marketing, they're doing the coloring and then the logo designs and, you know, how it looks on, on, on Facebook and all of these other different things. Um, from the attorney side of things, we use the term trademark because legally speaking, that's what it is. If you go pull up the, you know, the legislation, it's, it's referred to as a trademark. Um, with regard to a trade name, we don't even use that term really. It's again, still a trademark. And within the concept of trademarks, even though people tend to hear trademark and they tend to think of a word mark, a trademark can literally, it can be a word, it can be a slogan, it can be a design, it can be a scent, it can be a color. All of these things can be trademarked. Yeah. Um, scent. I, Apple has this scent that they have trademarked that they spray in all of their stores. Um, wow. Tiffany Blue, I believe, is also trademarked within um, one of their their uh, logos. No um, way. Yeah. All of these things can be trademarked. Those are more non-traditional trademarks. People tend not to go after those as much. Words are more common. Logos are more common. But all of these things together encompass what we consider a trademark. So I have a question about, okay, so clearly you're scaring me. So I definitely, you know, people need an attorney, right? Because yes. you're not thinking about it. You just need an attorney. And, and when so it comes to, yeah, coming up with those creative names, people often think that, well, if I go search online and I don't see anything that's identical, then it's available for use. And that's often where people end up in trouble because the standard for what is considered similar and what we refer to as confusing similarity on the legal side of things is actually a nine point DuPont factor. DuPont was the name of the case that was used to determine how you define whether something is similar or not. It's not just the word mark. It's not just the products and services. It looks at everything from the sophistication of a particular client base, the circumstances under which purchases are made, um, the trade channels, all of these things are used to determine whether a mark is similar or not. So you really want to have that subject matter expertise there letting you know whether you're infringing on somebody's mark, even if you don't think that you are. Um, ignorance of the law is no defense. You could end up having, mm. worst case scenario, I'm sorry to scare everyone, worst case scenario, you start using a brand, it hasn't been cleared by an attorney, you're making profits off this brand, it's infringing on somebody else's brand. You now not only have to pay them for infringement, they're also entitled to a portion of all your profits that you made oh my off their trademark. Wow. Sorry. So what if you lost money on, uh, uh, do they pay their pro rata share? <laughs> no, <laughs> they don't. Okay. No, they don't. <laughs> but you're still liable for infringement. Um, so, so Claire, sorry, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but I have a question. So if I'm getting an attorney, um, it does it have to be an attorney in the state where I am, or can I get like a national attorney? Like so how, how does IP that work? Law, yeah, IP is federal. Like I said, we are looking okay. at federal trademark ownership. So fortunately, you can hire an attorney in any state when it comes to getting your brands registered. Um, you're not locked into the state at all with regard to that. Where you are locked into state is for your business registration. You want to have an attorney who's local, who knows the business laws in your state and can let you know what's your best option with regard to liabilities, taxes, business formations, and things of that nature. Mm, okay. So, so that's the difference. So with the intellectual property, just to get clarity on this, 
let's say my brother-in-law is an attorney and he is just, you know, it's been tough with COVID and everything and he just needs more money. Can I just go to some random attorney because he's cheap and I know him? Or do you really recommend going to someone who specializes I, again, I would advise you to even find a law school clinic before you go find a random, I would hope that a random attorney wouldn't just try to do, like, I wouldn't, you know, defend you against the IRS if there was a tax issue. I'm going to tell you no, Um, because it's not my area of subject matter expertise, and I can't offer you the best advisory. So I would hope that attorneys who aren't experienced in a particular area are not attempting to charge clients fees for an expertise they don't have. That aside, um, my recommendation is to make sure that you are looking into what your attorney actually does, whether they're experienced in a particular practice area, whether this person can actually offer you sound advice, because a lot of what we do as an attorney, you don't learn it in law school, you learn it in practice after. Mm, And you want someone who can look at a situation and based on their years of experience, let you know, here's the likelihood of how this is going to turn out and here are your best options. You want to have that experience on your side. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Property manager. It's kind of like property (laughs) managers. We, uh, yeah, we don't go into this knowing everything, but the longer you get, uh, experience, the way better you'll be at it. Absolutely. Um, We are so happy to have Claire Gibson here at Gibson Law. She's a principal there and she specializes in intellectual property law. And so we're just asking her all the questions that any entrepreneur needs to know before they get their business started. So, (laughs) all right, you've gone through all these, you've gone through this process, you've gotten a slogan, um, you've got everything trademarked. Cool. And, but if I'm understanding right, it sounds like maybe me getting my slogan done isn't going, trademarked, isn't going to work for my logo or for the name of my company. So does this have to be done for every single, uh, each of those three, or is it all kind of wrapped up in one? And what's that process look like to, to make application? So ideally speaking, you're going to end up as a business owner with a trademark portfolio. That portfolio is going to have a few registrations in it at the end of it. Uh, You want to be able to have your word mark independently because as a plain text mark registered so that you can use that in any style, color, anything, any, any display option that you want. Uh, If you have stylized text that you use consistently with your your brand, your 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 trademark that you use to identify your goods and services. If there's a stylized element to that, you want to have that registered. That's a second registration. If you have a logo that you're using, you want to have that registered as well. You want to have the slogan registered. Again, plain text versus stylized text. Those would be separate registrations. Now, there is also an option, and this is kind of the tip that I give to small businesses, especially if, again, if you don't have a lot of capital starting out. You can also do what we call a composite mark, which would include the, the brand name with regard to you know how you identify the business. It can have the logo and it can have the slogan. So sometimes you'll see like Nike, for example, they'll have the Nike written out, they'll have the swoosh, and then they'll have just do it underneath. You can have that little, little segment registered as one trademark, and it has these different components and they're all protected. 
Now, the downside, there is a downside of doing it that way. While you save costs, that whole thing together is your trademark. And so you have to brand consistently with that oh. mark in that okay. way. So you're locked in in how you're able to, to market. You're not really able to have the same flexibility. Now, there's ways around it where you can kind of use it one way, the registered way, and then kind of separate it in, in different aspects later on. But it's a lot more limiting than if you have each of those segments registered as separate registrations. Now, the process, the second part of your question, the process of actually getting those registrations, you know, a lot of business owners think that trademark registration is going to be very similar to business registration where, you know, you just file it with the state and you get it in a week or two. Trademark registration at the shortest, the shortest on the best day at the USPTO, you are waiting nine months. It can wow. Actually, yeah. Is that bureaucracy um, or is that just? <laughs> No, it it's, it's it's the process, and I'm going to walk you through it, and you'll you'll kind of understand why. Um, and at the longest, it can take a few years, because not only can your application be suspended because of different issues, if you file in what's called an intent to use application, like I mentioned earlier, you can have up to 36 months before you put your products or services on the market, and each of those. Uh, there's six months extensions that add up to 36 months. And that has to happen before you get your registration because you have to show evidence of use in, in, in the market. Um, so there's two types of applications. There's actual use applications and there's intent to use applications. And those are exactly what they sound like. Actual uses, you're already using your mark. Intent to use is your intention to use it. Mm. When you file those, the difference is if you're already using it, I would submit evidence of the use in commerce with regards to the goods and services that you're using. And I file that up front. If you're not using it yet, we don't submit that evidence because we don't have it. So three months after we've actually submitted the application, the examiner then starts reviewing what's been made available to them. And that very largely looks like them looking for confusingly similar marks. They're looking for whether the mark is actually distinctive Descriptive trademarks, no such thing. If your mark immediately describes the goods and services you have available, it's a trademark. Like Property Management Inc. Yes, that's a no. Okay. That's <laughs> um, a no. You yeah, you can't do that. It, it's There's nothing distinctive about it. And the reason for that is you can't stop other people from using the only available term there is to describe hmm. a certain type of business. Um, one is, so like, what about our last name, Aspen? It's a name that's used. Um, it's a city, obviously, but you got Aspen Dental. But how you restricted am I? Very. Uh, mm, am I less so? Uh, you would likely face what's called a refusal based on the fact that it's merely a surname. So that examination process, there are a number of grounds for a trademark to be refused. Confusing similarity with other marks, lack of distinctiveness. If the mark is primarily geographically descriptive, you can't register those. So you can't go register New Aspen York City for New York City tours. Um, same thing with Aspen. Uh, even if we, we could argue that um, it's, it's acquired distinctiveness, if, it, if you've been using it for more than five years, or if you add other elements, we could say that those elements are distinctive, but by itself, it's merely functioning as a surname or you'll even face a, a dis geographically descriptive refusal. So there's a number of grounds that the USPTO uses to refuse trademark applications. And that's often where a lot of small businesses get into trouble 
because even if they somehow manage to squeak by and they've gotten a clean trademark search done on their own or they paid an attorney for the search and they just want to go ahead and do the registration on their own, they don't realize that there are so many grounds upon which the USPTO will refuse an application. And not having an attorney up front to let you know, hey, this is a no-go. You're not going to be able to get this registered because it's merely a surname. You've now spent costs on filing the application, and then you still have to go pay the attorney to tell you, hey, we can't fight this refusal for you because here's why it's not going to win. So you often end up throwing money down the toilet that way as well. Let's not do that. This is Bootstrappers. Uh, I'm Jeremy. That's Gwen Aspen. We're with Claire Gibson. She's a principal at Gibson Law, and we're talking about intellectual property. And really, we're talking about starting up your company and some of the do's and don'ts, a lot of do's um, (laughs) for when you're starting up your company. And I, so in that last thing we just talked about, I think my takeaway is this, have a trademark portfolio, which I think we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something that when you're starting up your business in the first what year or, or before you open your doors, have a trademark portfolio. So um, that you don't put money down the drain, getting things all branded and well, paying a yeah. graphic designer just to find out that you can't even use what any of those materials well, that you paid for. I think what's what's so hard for us to do as business owners is that it feels like we're protecting ourselves against this if this this you know amorphous sort of ghostly liability that might happen. Not, that might yeah. happen. But um, I'm trying to talk myself. I, I try and when I was walking myself through it, I, it makes it a little bit easier to understand or feel like it's worth it. When in the same stroke in in doing all of this, you're also protecting yourself from other people doing that to you in yes. in the future. And that's that's that there's a I think there's a psychological click that happens when you think of it as a tangible value. It's not just maybe someday. Well, maybe I also that. think Oh, sorry, Claire. I was just going to say, I think the other problem with uh, these issues when you're starting a company inevitably people think you're crazy and they're like, uh, really, you're going to start this company? Like, are you, do you think it's even going to work? I mean, have you ever done this before? Uh, I remember Jeremy, when we were starting our property management company, we met with a financial services guy and you told him, Oh, we're going to start a property management company. He was like, do you even have your real estate license yet? And you were like, no, Not yet. And he looked at me like run girlfriend, get out of here. Um, do not marry this douchebag. He does not have number one of the five-step process. done. <laughs> and so it's hard when, you know, you have those detractors in your life. Uh, we've talked about this before in the show where uh, people's parents often what want what's safest for them, not what's best for them. And then you're going to throw all this money at, you know, trademarks and stuff, and you haven't even gotten off the ground yet. But I guess what you're, you're telling us is that the world of business is sophisticated to the point where you just can't avoid it. Right, Claire? It's a complex process. You know, I, I, I love entrepreneurs. I love how creative they are. Unlike me being an attorney, we're pretty regimented. Um, but I love working with entrepreneurs and small businesses because of how creative they are and, and how innovative they are. So there are ways to get through all of this, but it makes more sense to do it the right way. I know that that's generally difficult for people to swallow, but 
it you end up spending more money in the long run. And again, going back to the trademark application process, if you even manage to make it to the examination process and the examiner then refuses the mark, you're spending money on an attorney there as well. And after that, there's another aspect of the process where, and this this also kind of works in your favor when you become the trademark registration owner. Assuming the examination process goes in your favor, the next stage is publication for opposition. And this is kind of like, you know, when you get married and the officiant says, does anybody have any objections? Speak now or forever, hold your peace. That's what happens with the trademark. Ah. It gets published in the USPTO official gazette and third parties have the option to oppose your ownership of that mark. So they have 30, what is it, 30 days, 30 days to come forward and say, we, we oppose your use of this mark for X, Y, Z reasons. They can also request an extension to do that. But generally speaking, people tend to get it in around the 30 day mark. Um, and so it's still a difficult process. It takes, like I said, minimum nine months, on average about 12. It can take up to years. Um, assuming you make it through that opposition period, and you've then either submitted your statement of use or you've gotten your notice of allowance in your proceeding to registration. Once you have that registration in hand, you're, you're halfway there. <laughs> you're not at the finish line, but you're halfway there. You now have a federal trademark registration that gives you exclusive right to use that brand for those associated goods and services. And so that is your tangible moment where you've acquired something for all of the sacrifice and the costs and expenses that you've put in through this process. Now, what that means is you now also have to start policing that brand. You have to start policing that brand. And that means you have to proactively stop other people from using this mark that you've just spent so much time and money acquiring the registration for, buying the domains, putting together marketing, getting a graphic designer and all of these other things. And so that's something you want to continue to do through the lifetime of your mark to make sure that the rights that you just spent time and money acquiring are the full breadth of those rights. Um, I like to remind clients, it's kind of like, if you don't police your mark and somebody starts using it, your rights are diminished. It's very much like property ownership. If you have a vacation home and there's someone who's living in your vacation house and you didn't know and you weren't checking, eventually they're gonna have squatters rights to your property mm. because mm. you were not checking on your property. The same thing applies to intellectual property and trademarks. If you are not actively policing your trademarks, and that includes using things like watch services and your attorney can help you get that set up, and you are not sending out cease and desist letters, and you're not filing oppositions at the USPTO, those people can acquire rights to your brand that you've spent time, money, and energy developing and registering and everything else. Claire, I've my eyes have been opened. I know Jeremy and I have already gone through this where we've had problems before, so we so appreciate um, your insight. I do want to just tell listeners that you do have a promotion going on right now for bootstrappers listeners. What is that promotion, Claire? Yeah. So we offer an initial consultation for small businesses that are looking to get started with their, their trademark registration. And so that consultation is normally about an hour long. And we do a preliminary search to let them know whether the mark is confusingly similar and whether it's available, whether it's distinctive enough, any issues that we've received with registration. And for your listeners, we're offering a 10% discount. All they need to do is reference the show when they do their sign up. 
and we'll add the discount on top of that. And how do they get a hold of you? They can reach out to us at admin at gibsonlaw.nyc or they can visit the website www.gibsonlaw.nyc and they can sign up to our business calendar right there and they'll get on my schedule. Awesome. That is wicked cool to use another East Coast vernacular. (laughs) Um, uh, I wanted to ask about, um, you were talking in the last segment about policing. And that got me to be a little bit nervous because in order to police something, one, you have to, you have to direct your energies outward into a space that you're not necessarily in. You're not looking around the internet for, for infringements on your trademark. So what is a, for a small company, let's say revenues, um, the million to, let's say the 500,000 to a million dollar range. What is reasonably, what could a business owner reasonably expect to be considered uh, sufficient? I would say, and it also depends on the strength of the mark. If you have a really distinctive mark, and this is where circling back to where we started, it really, really makes sense to develop a distinctive mark from the beginning. If you have a really distinctive mark, it's a lot more difficult for people to try to infringe on it because they stick out like a sore thumb. Nobody is going to go try using Google or Google for a search engine. They're just not going to do it. Um, when you have marks that are weaker, that are using common terms, they're not necessarily as distinctive it's a lot more difficult because they kind of blend in to the background in your particular industry. So if you have a particularly distinctive mark, you're actually going to end up spending less money on policing than if you have what's more a less distinctive type mark, because your attorneys are then going to have to spend more time and energy determining whether what's out there is confusingly similar or not. So generally speaking, what you want to do is have watch services. Watch services are a system whereby attorneys have, yeah, we have an an computerized algorithm that searches the USPTO, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office Gazette, where marks are published for opposition before they're registered. And they will also search domain name registrations, and they'll even search social media handles. Some go Mm. as far as even searching uh, search engines, depending on the level of the search. Obviously, the more they're searching, the more expense you're looking at. But generally speaking, you can get just watch services alone from anywhere from a thousand to five thousand a year. They're not that expensive. Um, If you are really like a single entrepreneur trying to start things on your own in your living room, um, the lowest cost option is still not going to get you everything you need is just get Google notifications for your particular brand. And that'll give you some insight as to what's out there. Um, Then you're looking at additional costs for the attorney's fees to review the watch notices. And your next step there is sending out cease and desist letters. Um, If you have an attorney that you work with regularly, they'll probably give you some kind of discounted rate because they're going to use pretty much the same formats for the cease and desist letters to every infringer that they come across it. it. There's a standard way of writing these things where, you know, we establish the client's rights in the letter. Then there's an outline of what the infringement is and why it's problematic. And then pretty much the demands with regards to what legal actions will be taken. And so if you have an attorney that you're working with, they can probably give you some kind of package deal with regards to, you know, they'll send out X, Y, many cease and desist letters for you at a set rate. Um, Now, how effective the cease and desist letter kind of depends. 
cease and desist letters always hinge on a, a threat of litigation that you have to be willing to follow through on to police the mark. Litigation, of course, is expensive. Um, more often, most cases that get filed end up settling. Most people are not going to spend money going all the way through to a decision. So you're still then looking at spending money up front. But in the long run, if you win and if, say, you get a settlement or if you actually win on a judgment, very often the infringer can be liable for your attorney's fees. You are eligible for a por portion of the profits that they made off your brand. So there is somewhat of a quote unquote pot of gold at the end of the rainbow with regards to that. Um, and an additional aspect of the policing is filing oppositions with the USPTO before what's called a trademark trial and appeal board. It's essentially like federal litigation. It follows the same rules, but it's being done before the TTAB as opposed to in federal court. Costs there are also high. That said, again, more people settle before it even gets to discovery. So your initial costs aren't that high and you still get to pr protect your mark. Sometimes you may even get a settlement amount. Um, so it really is worth it to make sure that you're policing your trademarks. And again, well, that's one of the, oh, sorry, I, I guess that's one of the best things about the uh, having that trademark portfolio is that you really have a solid footing going anywhere. I mean, anybody that's infringing on it in any way at least knows what they're up against and would have to reasonably just back down from an argument, right? Because it's pretty cut and dry at that point. It is. Very yeah. often, if it's, an, it's a, if it's an entrepreneur who's infringing and they don't have legal advice, sometimes they're pretty flippant about it. By the time they go hire an attorney to help them defend themselves, mm -hmm. any IP attorney is going to tell them, look, they have a federal registration. You need to stop because you're going to lose. You're going to end up spending more money. It's just not worth it. Um, very rarely can you argue against a federal trademark owner if you are the junior user and actually win. The only time that might happen is if you have been using the mark longer than the federal trademark registration owner. And that's kind of the case that I was mentioning earlier with Lady A versus Lady Antebellum, where they won't be able to stop her from using the mark. She has been using it for longer than them, but she also can't stop them from using it. So it's going to kind of likely end up being a wash. But that federal registration is power in your hands. You have clearly determined ownership rights you have had a mark that has been reviewed and examined and granted by a federal agency, and you have been granted exclusive right to use the mark with regards to those goods and services. So a cease and desist letter with a federal registration attached is pretty powerful. Right. Wow. Well, that is uh, so helpful. Thank you so much for all that information, Claire. And, and let's again, make sure that everybody can get a hold of you um, and take advantage of a 10% discount by referencing bootstrappers when you email admin at gibsonlaw.nyc. Just mention bootstrappers for a 10% discount. Thank you, Claire, so much. And that's a wrap of Bootstrappers. We'll see you next time. Remember, stay hungry, break things, and strap on those business boots. This has been Bootstrappers, a unique presentation designed to help you better understand what makes the world turn. Contact Gwen or Jeremy Aspen at hosts at bootstrapper.club. Join us next time on News Talk 1290 KOIL at our website or download the podcast.